Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. And my guest today is the novelist Sherry Priest. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, for people who don't know uh, you or your work, even though they should, because you are an award-winning and multiple <laughs> award-nominated author, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, well, I, I sit at home with my dogs and I write books. Um, I did a horror and Southern Gothic for a while and uh, nobody cared. And uh, then I was an overnight success after 10 years and seven books. Isn't that always the way? <laughs> it, it is. It really is. Um, with a steampunk project that was originally a horror project, but we went, what the heck, this is hot right now. And that was called Bone Shaker. So I've had, I think at this point, 23 books published. And anytime someone says, hey, I read your book, they, they mean Bone Shaker. And that's fine. Honestly, I bought a house. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> But um, uh, when the steampunk train kind of uh, petered out on me, um, I went back to horror. And that's mostly what I do now. I've done some young adult material. I did I Am Princess X and The Agony House with Scholastic. And um, I'm also in George R. R. Martin's Wild Cards Consortium. I, I write over there with him sometimes. And I've done reviews for magazines and video games and uh, RPG work and all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, oh, and ad copy for things like uh, frozen sandwiches and pantyhose. Wow, the glamorous one. Yes, <laughs> the glamour. Mostly for Amazon. Although, oh, really? Oh, right. oh, yeah. And before that, I spent four years um, managing all the Craftsman catalog as it, uh, it went online for Sears. So I was the tool girl for a bit. I did not know that. <laughs> Yeah, before Sears kind of became what Sears has become. Uh, now, I worked for their online data aggregate, the, the place that managed their online warehousing. It was this little company in Tennessee, and uh, the office was on a golf course. It was kind of a long story. <laughs> but anyway, they, we, we uploaded the entire uh, Craftsman catalog and the wish book and everything to, to the internet every year. And I managed uh, all the hard lines. I did the tools. I did all the Craftsman stuff and DeWalt and Bosch and Kenmore. So I had all the refrigerators and washers and dryers, too. <laughs> what a great career. <laughs> well, the crazy day jobs that we all have before, you know, before becoming writers. Oh, before that? It was real estate, actually. Before that, I did a real estate magazine. I wrote about houses. Uh, well, see, that doesn't surprise me at all, because I, I have read The Family Plot. Right. <laughs> and as I was reading it, I, I kept thinking to myself, I have never read a more Sherry book in my life. It is... Southern Gothic, ghosts, uh, like, you know, family drama and lovingly detailed descriptions <laughs> of the house and all its architectural features. Oh, well, the fun of that. So I, I do have some experience restoring houses. We worked on a Victorian for a long time. And uh, my dad uh, is, is now retired from the army, but he hated living on post. So anytime we moved anywhere, he just put an ad in the paper like, hey, I'm an officer. I got a couple kids. I'm married. Do you have a crappy old house you want worked on for a couple of years while I'm here? <laughs> and will you let us rent it for next to nothing while I do this? Uh, which is how one year we ended up living in a colonial mansion in outside of uh, Colonial Heights, Virginia, it, with a circular driveway and everything. We were practically our own sitcom. It was amazing. Um, but, so I do have some, some restoration experience. But when it came to salvage for that book, I actually got really drunk and I emailed a TV show here in the States called Salvage Dogs. <laughs> It's literally just about this crew in Roanoke, Virginia, that um, they travel around and break down old houses and buildings that are going to be torn down, and they take out what they can. 
And uh, one day I was home by myself and uh, it was it was one evening, let's say <laughs> one evening I was home by myself and I'd had a few drinks and uh, I was just watching the show in the background. And at the very end of this scroll runs about like, hey, do you like our show? Send us an email at, you know, whatever. And I looked at my phone <laughs> and I thought I can do this. <laughs> so I did. And I totally forgot about it. So the next morning when I got an email back from their general manager, I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? Because <laughs> I submitted it through a form. <laughs> and uh, his response like CC'd my response, basically. And it was something like, hi, my name is Sherry Priest. I promise I'm not a crazy person. I'm a writer. Look, here's my Wikipedia entry. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. And it was kind of like that for like three paragraphs. But, by the way, can you help me write a book? <laughs> right. Well, no, I was like, look, I have some very specific questions. I, I'm, I was already halfway through the book as it was. And I'm like, you know, I, I have some experience with old houses. Uh, but oh, so this wasn't before you started no. writing the book? <laughs> no, this was well oh. into it. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, so I was like, hey, listen, I just have some really specific questions um, about this from, from a salvage angle. I was wondering if there was somebody I could talk to for a few minutes on the phone. And so the guy replies and he's like, well, you know, I check this email address like once a week and it's usually full of questions like, how do I start my own salvage company? And then I just send them the let me Google that for you link. He's like, but no one has ever asked me this before. Here's my phone number. Call me around lunch. And um, so I did. And we talked for about an hour on the phone. He was super duper helpful. Um, I thanked him in the acknowledgments and all that stuff. And and he's like, well, by specific, what do you mean? I'm like, all right. So for an estate of this size, are we talking like two, two ton duallys and a 16 footer? Or do you think one? And, you know, <laughs> and so finally, he's like, yeah, these are really the most specific questions anyone has ever asked me. <laughs> but uh, it really helped round out some of the details. Yeah. Welcome to being interviewed by a writer. <laughs> yes, yes. It's uh, so much fun. It's not the first time I've done that. And I found that people, especially people with very niche specialties, really, really love being asked about you know, what they do. Oh, that's absolutely true isn't it because that's you know you find that with all manner of research if you need to go to somebody and ask them specific questions as you say that the more niche their oh, yeah. occupation the keener they are to actually tell you about it because they finally found somebody who's interested in what they do oh i am still in christmas card contact with a firefighter historian in pinellas county florida who i emailed probably <laughs> 10 years ago god longer than that even like 15 i needed to find out if in the 1930s uh there was a bridge connecting one of the tampa keys to the mainland and i needed to know if they had a fire truck on the island um because it's a very small narrow island it's not even a, a mile across maybe two miles long and uh, it was it was an important plot point for a book and i just emailed a few people and this one guy's like wait hey our former fire captain is retired now and he's a he's a local historian of this stuff i got i mean just a freaking thesis back from that man <laughs> when really all i needed was a yes or no was there a fire truck on this island in 1931 so what did you want? Did you want there to be one or not be one? Uh, I wanted there to be one. And in fact, there probably was not one, but it was within the realm of possibility that one could have been there. See, there had been a bridge, but the bridge was washed out and it wasn't rebuilt until I think the 1940s. See, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> right. was if, he'd come, if he'd come back and said, actually, no, no, we didn't have one there at all. Uh, then there has never been one there. Would you have just put it in there anyway? Oh, totally. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, Lord, <laughs> the running joke about the steampunk stuff, for that matter, was uh, anytime anyone would ask me about my research and, you know, how did you do all of this? You find out all of these things and all these nitty gritty details. And, and it's like, the answer is I cherry picked the stuff I liked and I ignored everything that didn't work uh, because yep. I could. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was literally it. <laughs> right, because that, that's why you have the word alternate in alternate yes, history. Yes, I got this wonderful message on Facebook right, right before Dreadnought came out. It was a sequel to Bone Shaker. And the user icon, it looked like Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood. And this was somebody who'd gotten an advanced reader copy, and he just he posts this comment on my public Facebook. He's like, really? Clara Barton meeting Sally Louisa Tompkins? Really? And so Clara Barton, you may know who that is. She formed the Red Cross. Sally Louisa Tompkins is a fairly famous figure in the American South around the time of the Civil War because she was a really rich white girl who wasn't used to hearing no, and she opened her own hospital. And um, in real life, this I'm not making this up, she was a... Uh, what we would call now just wildly OCD. Uh, she wanted everything clean. She wanted everything white. So she boiled all the laundry with hydrogen peroxide, cleaned the floors with boiling water and hydrogen peroxide. And this was a war hospital that had a 93% survival rate in the 1860s. Wow. I mean, people were coming over from Europe trying to figure out what this woman was doing, because although there was an idea of germ theory, it certainly wasn't you know, developed to any sufficient extent. But, and by the end of the war, the worst cases from North and South were being sent to this hospital, just in the hopes that they could possibly be saved. And I mean, she was studied for years. But anyway, in, <laughs> in Dreadnought, Clara Barton and a guy named Dorrance Atwater, who was also a real person, uh, uh, basically end up at Sally's hospital. And that never happened in real life as far as I know. But I thought it would be kind of cool. So I get this message from this dude who looks like Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood kind of picking at me. And I was like, look, man, I'm just having fun here. It's it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> don't you worry your pretty little head. And uh, he actually sent me a private message. He goes, no, I think it's really cool. I'm on the board of directors for the American Civil War Museum. Oh, wow. In, uh, in uh, Richmond or D.C. or wherever it is. He's like, would you like to come out here? And uh, we actually added them to a tour stop, and it was really cool. And I found out when I got there, that was not a clip you know, or a, or a meme from the movie. That's what that dude really looked like. <laughs> he, walked into the oh. back, he walked into the back of the reading, and I was like, no way. <laughs> Holy smokes. But uh, yeah, but like the, the more niche it is, the more weird it is. But, but I, I routinely ignored things that just kind of didn't fit with what I was doing, because who, who cares? You know, I got zombies in here, for God's sake. Well, that, I mean, and that's the point where you go, hang on a second. <laughs> right. You know, it's like the arguments about, oh, so you're fine with dragons and uh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, elves yeah. and all that sort of thing, but we can't have women in in plate armor. Good lord, no. Well, and most of most of the the most of that that I get about, well, these ladies are really way too modern. They're based on real people. Oh, I know. I, yeah. Sally Louisa was a real person. Obviously, Clara Barton was, and I, I wrote in Maria Boyd, who was a very famous Confederate spy. Uh, to to some limited success and with a very complicated life story. And I, I, I sent her to work for Pinkerton after the war, which made perfect sense to me. He was hiring female detectives in the early 1900s. I mean, this is all stuff that happened. None of this is a secret. It's just not something you see a lot done with. I think people are just so used to authors making things up that, uh, well, although I say that, but see, I've had similar kind of things with uh, the spy stuff where, you know, I've had some people assume that I must be really well connected and I must have, <laughs> uh, you know, sources on the inside and that all retired spies that I hit up for research and stuff. And I'm like, no, I just, I read a lot of books and right. then I make the rest up. 
Um, you know, and obviously you try to make it sound realistic, but sure. I'm not actually dealing in hard facts a lot of the time. <laughs> oh, no. And especially when, when you're talking, it's certainly anything set in, in the Americas in, in the 19th century, uh, a lot of those facts were really freaking unpleasant for an awful lot of people. Mm. And one of the conversations that my editor and I had at the time at least when it came to Bone Shaker. And, and we did not yet know that that was going to start a series. But we decided that, like, well, it, there's that funny line. It, they call it the Tiffany problem. Do you know what I mean about the Tiffany problem? I do, yes. Yeah. So go on, you explain it. Theophonia, Theophina, Theophena, something like that. It's a medieval name, and Tiffany is short for it. But if you call a 19th century character Tiffany, everybody's like, oh, well, obviously that sounds way too modern. Um, so people tend not to do it, even though it's perfectly... Mm. It's totally kosher as far as you know medieval fiction goes, but but we don't do it. Um, like one of the examples of that actually from one of the books, I don't even remember which one now. Um, I use the expression "it blew his mind." That's a 19th century reference to dynamite. That's it's an old mining industry slang. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, right but it sounds modern, <laughs> and somebody called yeah. me out about it. And even though, even though I was right, I felt like I was wrong. You know what I mean? So we spent a lot of time with that. It strikes me as similar to this issue of um, the issue of writing dialogue. Yes. Where if if you actually faithfully transcribe the way people talk. <laughs> we all sound like idiots. <laughs> it, right, it's terrible. You can't write that. Everybody sounds like a driveling moron who constantly interrupts themselves, goes back on themselves, restarts sentences, inserts um, ah, like, <laughs> you know, as every other set. But it's, it's dreadful. And so when we write dialogue, novels, screenplays, comics, I mean, it really doesn't matter what the medium is. When you're writing dialogue, you consciously clean it up. You write in a way that sounds like it might be natural, but in fact is actually, you know, if people really talk like that, you'd go, my God, they're a magnificent orator. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, honestly, and it's a learned skill. It's not something that, that you just, everybody naturally yeah. knows how to do. And and I, I used to think I had a knack for it earlier in my career, and I found out that I did not, and I had a lot to learn. Uh, with the first project I did on wild cards, um, to make a very long story short, I ended up writing the interstitial mystery for the project Fort Freak, which came out, I think, in 2011. And initially, I had been given 25,000 words to write seven segments. And the way it was going to go is this is the frame story. There are going to be four mysteries set inside it. Each of those mysteries holds a clue to the overall mystery. And in the end, it's all put together. But I had to write mine before. Oh, so not complicated. No, at all. not com Oh, wait. <laughs> it gets more fun. Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> uh, well, this is George R. R. Martin. So uh, that 25,000 words turned into 60,000 words, 17 interstitial segments. And, wow. Um, yeah, it was it was a whole mess. But when we finally got the whole thing done, and and, and he comes from a uh, from a Hollywood background himself, a TV writing background mostly. And uh, he was like, "All right, here's the thing. Um, now we have to sweat the script." And I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. And he's like, it, "It's just, it's like this. Your dialogue, it's great. It sounds just like people talk, and it's terrible. We can't use any of it." Um, <laughs> now I'm going to teach you how Hollywood people talk. And we pulled, I think, twenty thousand words out of that. I think the end result was about forty-two, forty-three thousand. Just from dialogue, largely from dialogue. Wow. And I did not realize how – I thought I was pretty tight with this. I'd had people tell me I did a good job at it, and George was like, no. <laughs> no, we can do better. Let's do this. And honestly, that was – I learned – Jesus, I learned more about writing from that particular year of working with him than I did in a master's program and an undergrad degree. Oh, well, that reminds me of that wonderful passage in um, Stephen King's On Writing with – I think it was the editor of his college newspaper or something. 
when he handed in his first assignment, which was to uh, write up just a real short summary of a basketball game. Uh, and he handed it in and the guy took it and red penned it, you know, like, like an editor. Uh, and then handed it, handed the red pen back to King and said, do I need to explain any of this to you? Do you understand <laughs> like what these marks mean? And King, and King just looked at it with his mouth open and, and nodded and went, yeah, I, I understand. Uh, and he said like, his, from his expression, he, the guy thought that he'd offended you know, that King yeah, was horrified yeah. and everything. But actually, he was like, this is amazing. Nobody's ever showed me this before. Yeah. And he said he learned more in, you know, in that 15 minutes than he had in three years of uh, being tutored. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people because one of the things people, oh, what's your advice? You know, well, my, my advice is be careful who you take advice from. Uh, you know, don't take advice from anybody mm. or, or don't take suggestions or revisions or feedback from anybody you wouldn't take advice from about anything else. But what I try to tell people is pick two or three people who are a lot better at this than you are and see if you can get them to talk to you uh, or work with you. And that's, that's, I, I know everybody learns differently, but I found it just immensely helpful. That and, and my first editor, honestly, uh, uh, Liz Garinsky, who was with Tor for a long time and now has her own company. But uh, merely having someone pay that kind of close attention to every single word I was doing for the first time in my life, uh, who wasn't, you know, a professor somewhere i think right right i was or a family member you're a family member well no my family no <laughs> um, oh, not, not your family actually. not no, my family <laughs> <laughs> well i mean my dad my dad and my stepmom and, and my half brother and kind of that end of the family it's it's not a big family it's, it's but they are they are good fans true fans in fact my dad uh when he was still actually he was retired from the army by then but he was working at a military hospital and on one of my very first signings for my very first book he sat me up in the nurse's lounge and just ordered everybody to buy it <laughs> So oh, wow. it was a great signing, you know, <laughs> but, but they're not, but they're not readers like that either. So I needed a good critic is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Well, you, know, you need a critic who knows what they're doing and can approach it like a work rather than as a reader or a fan. I think that's the issue is I'm always reticent about, you know, I have a circle of beta readers, but it's a very small circle because they're all people that I trust are able to look at it and go, okay, I understand this is a work in progress. And I, know what a work in progress looks like and understand that it will change and will be different when it comes out and is f finally published. And that's, it sounds simple, right. but actually being <laughs> able to approach a manuscript in that way with that kind of semi distance, as you say, is actually quite a skill. So I just want to rewind a minute then. So take us through, how did you become a professional writer? Like what led up to it and what did you learn from that first editor and those first experiences? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, there was literally never anything else I ever wanted to do. It was kind of either be a writer or marry well. <laughs> and um, I, I'm, I'm married fine. My husband's a lovely man, but, you know, we're not rich I people. I recall reading that in Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I, 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 I don't know. I just, I kind of knew real, real young that this was what I wanted to do and I didn't want to do anything else. And, and so I read everything I could get my hands on. And uh, at my high school reunion, I only went to the to the ten. I didn't go to the twenty, or God help me, the the thirty that's coming up. Um, <laughs> but on on my yearbook, my senior yearbook, I was writing in everyone's. I was signing everything like, "Hey, save this for when I'm a rich and famous writer. It'll be worth some money." And people actually brought those yearbooks back <laughs> to the reunion to show oh, that's me. Wonderful. <laughs> I was like, "Yes, I remember. Thank you." I was yeah. Uh, but no, it was all I wanted to do, and I ended up 
through a convoluted series of events, uh, taking a, a, a year between high school and college. And I ended up at this private Christian college. That's another long story. And uh, I was an English degree, got that with a history minor, and I didn't know what else to do. I, I, was, I had literally no skills. <laughs> the only thing I was any good at was being in school. And uh, so I, I got waitlisted by the University of Florida for a PhD at one point. And I was going to go there for my graduate work, but my mother moved. Again, long story. Uh, so I went to the University of Tennessee, and I signed up for a master's in rhetoric or composition critical theory. And it took me three years because Tennessee didn't want to admit that I lived in Tennessee. It's a long story. <laughs> but I got to take two classes a semester, and, and it was fine. And after that, let's see, I, I kept trying to get a job writing and doing writing type things. And I worked in a used bookstore for a while. And then I ended up as the associate director of a school-aged child care program while I was a TA in my graduate degree teaching two classes and while I was the grad assistant to the head of the rhetoric department. I mean, looking back, I literally don't know when I slept. I, <laughs> I was taking a full load. I was working three jobs, you know. It uh, sounds like a lot. It yeah. sounds like a lot. And that's when I started writing my first book. So on top of all of that, you were also somehow was, finding time to write. Well, I, by then, Isn't it amazing what we could do when we were young? I know, right? <laughs> I mean, now I think about it, I'm like, God, what was I doing? But, but I, by then, I already had, I think, five trunk novels. Oh, wow, right. Five, five or six before the one that I actually, I, I got an agent for five minutes, and then she ran away and folded the company. And uh, this was back long enough ago that you had to mail everything in on query. You know, you mailed your proposal or your packet or your query, mm -hmm. whatever in the physical mail, like, like the ancients where the dinosaurs were. But, um, so I, I had this book called Four and Twenty Blackbirds, and it was a weird little Southern Gothic mystery thing. And I started shopping it around, and I aimed high, and uh, got a million and one rejections, picked up the pieces of my shattered life and move on, like you do. And then I ended up working uh, at a newspaper, the Chattanooga Times Free Press. I, I produced their real estate magazine for a while. It was called The Home Finder. And then uh, that job, the, the, our, my boss changed. They got bought out. It was a big mess. And I was in the classifieds department one day hating my life. And I saw an ad for a copy editor at a little digital company, Unspecified. And from my office at the newspaper, I faxed them my resume because <laughs> these were the olden days. And that's how I ended up working for Sears. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. I still deal with people in America who use faxes. What now. is wrong with these people? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but that's how I ended up working for Sears. So while I was working for Sears, um, I, I got this weird email one day. And uh, the subject line, I'm not even kidding. The subject line was, oh, my God, I hope you're still checking this email. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even joking. <laughs> and the return address was from somebody at Tor.com. And... I opened it up, and it's this young editorial assistant named Liz Grinsky, who, uh, and she, again, she was not a full editor. She had been tasked, along with some other underling, with cleaning out the office of an editor who had died. And I, again, I am not making this up. <laughs> so while cleaning out this office of an editor who died, under a desk, she found a box uh, stuffed full of pitches that this person had set aside to maybe reconsider later, and she found mine in there. And uh, I had moved, so I didn't have the same phone number anymore because this was that long ago. And I remember at the time, because she'd, she'd sent me a, a letter back to the address and it'd, it'd come back to her. 
Um, at the time, I remember there had been a lot of conversation in like writers magazines because this is kind of pre-internet organization among writers. Um, but there was a lot of conversation in in what I was able to read about like whether or not it was professional to include an email address. Like, like maybe that was just super tacky and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and, but I did it anyway on a lark. And that's the only reason I have a career at this point, or at least the way it went, the way it did. Right. And that's the thing. It may well have turned out right. a different <laughs> Who way knows? if that hadn't happened. <laughs> if that hadn't You just happened. never know. Yeah. Yeah. But that is a hell of a story. Yeah. yeah. So that got <laughs> you your first deal with Tor. Yeah. Oh, but before that, actually, the book had been picked up by this micro press based out of Atlanta called Marietta Publishing. And I don't care if he comes at me, he's still owes me money it was we, we called the guy mad bruce the pirate he he who boy i mean that kind of tells you all you need to know doesn't it yeah in the end he was continuing to sell the first edition of the book because the, the one that tor put out was a new edition it was like 20 or thirty thousand words longer professionally edited so forth and so on um but he even though uh, he'd signed the copyright back over to me continued to print those on demand and sell them at conventions all over the country for about three years before tor caught up to him and came down on him like a fist of god and yep. <laughs> so to the best of my knowledge he stopped doing that then but he still likes to complain to people about me and it's like man i just uh i give up but anyway i ended up with tor yes and that was a three book deal and um after that it was a two book deal for two kind of partials that, that really they just kind of wanted to keep me in the stable. So I, I guess one of the lessons that you learned then from that early experience was, you know, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> lawyers and luck. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was a good time. And, and, and then my first agent retired. He was a nice old contract lawyer from Tennessee. And uh, I ended up signing with, with a I hate to say a proper agent. He he did write by me, but he he mostly did military uh, nonfiction, and and Tor was kind of a black box to him when all was said and done. Yeah. Anyway, so so I ended up with them, and the first book was called Fathom, and it was my first hardback, and I really loved it, and I could have sold more copies out of a trench coat in the park, uh, like literally just out of the trunk of my car. I could have sold more copies than that book actually sold. You sold one over here. Oh, yay! Thank you. Because <laughs> it's on my bookshelf right now. <laughs> I loved it. It was my first starred review for anything, and just no, it had the nip slip cover. We called it. Uh, there, yes. there had been another cover that had been commissioned and I'm not being coy. I do not know who the artist was, but, uh, there was a problem when it turned out that that artist had just copied a bunch of covers of a comic book called Fathom. Oh no. Right around the time the author died. So his stuff was all over the place yeah, yeah. and everybody was going to notice it. Well, and also <laughs> the, the reason that it was all over the place was because that was a really popular, right. successful comic. It took so me two it, seconds of Googling. Like some obscure. No, it took me two yeah. seconds of Googling wow. to figure out because I was like, these look really familiar when they showed me the, the, sketches that they were thinking of going with and i i raised it to my editor who was extreme oh my god you know we got to go deal with this and so they threw out that cover and i think somebody drummed that one up on a lunch break maybe <laughs> um right it's it's clearly it's quick it's photoshop cover, it's evocative it's fine yeah but it's good. <laughs> it's uh but but it didn't sell is the point and and i honestly thought that that was probably going to be the end of me writing under my own name when all was said and done. Because a, a career reboot is, is not at all uncommon, you know? Right, right. So you thought you might have to, because a lot of mid-list authors face this, don't they, where they have to relaunch their career under a pseudonym. Well, it's so much better to be a new author than to be a bad-selling author. 
just the way because books are sold largely on consignment in this country, at least. And um, if if the bookstore orders four and they only sell three next time book another book comes out, they only order two. And maybe even if they sell both of those, they may not order more. And it's just kind of a death spiral. And the second book in that deal was supposed to be a vampire noir. It was basically a modern vampire retelling of Red Harvest. (laughs) I'm a huge Dash Hammett fan. And uh, it was called Awaken to Darkness. And I got about halfway through it. And uh, I just just wasn't feeling, I just wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I started noodling on Bone Shaker or what was going to become Bone Shaker. And I was talking about it online. And Liz at one point said, hey, let me see that thing you're working on. And I said, honestly, I, I hesitate to show you. We both know they're not going to let you buy it. I mean, Fathom hadn't sold 1,000 copies, you know, after six months on the market. Uh, I, was, I was like, they're, they're not going to do it. But she's like, no, 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 come on, let me see, let me see. So I gave it to her. And it was only about four chapters. But then she called me, which was unusual because we, we did almost everything via email. She's like, here's the thing. I want to swap out this book for the vampire book in your contract. I think she's like, look, we've got Scott Westerfeld coming along with Leviathan with, with a young adult steampunk that's going to be really big. And we've got uh, this guy named George Mann we just picked up who has this project called The Difference Engine that's going to be coming out in the same slot this book is planned to. If you can draft this by the same date, <laughs> we can just swap these out. And I think this will actually have a, pro- have a chance to catch. And uh, so, so all credit to Liz, because she was totally right. But it, it did mean that I went from yeah. having almost 60,000 words of a draft to having about 15,000 words of a draft. And the deadline did not move. Mm. <laughs> so I drafted the rest of it in about five or six weeks, actually. And uh, we, so it, we went through the normal editorial rounds, of course. And somewhere toward the end, I mean, like around copy edits, okay? We, we were getting ready to put this thing in for good. Uh, we realized because there's a split POV narrative in the second half of the book between this mother and her son. And we realized at one point that the son was missing a day out of his narrative, that we had just Whoops. been bad at math, basically. <laughs> so at the very last second, I wrote this, and I'm using air quotes, chapter. <laughs> it was like two pages long, and it amounts to basically, uh, and then Zeke slept for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> Next chapter, let's keep moving. But uh, no, it, it absolutely changed my life. I'd, I'd never had any kind of success like that but before, and I and not really since. Although although Princess X, the young adult one I did for Scholastic, actually did about as well. But um, that was a work for hire project. That wasn't actually my own right, uh, yeah. developmental thing. So it doesn't it, it doesn't feel quite as personal, is what I mean. <laughs> sure. So that's I mean that emphasizes the importance also then of having an editor that you, whose judgment you can right. trust as well, because if you didn't trust her judgment the way you clearly do, you might well have resisted this idea of swapping out the book. Absolutely. But no, she was 100% right, and I I owe her forever. And uh, we're still friends. I mean, even though she left tour, I guess, a year or two ago now. Uh, But no, she's she's a fantastic person. Can't recommend her enough. And a brilliant woman. You mentioned at the start, 23 books, which is... I think. I mean, that's... (laughs) That's uh, right, but the the fact that you can't even remember for sure. Well, no, it, it's not so much is, that I can't remember you know. for sure. It's it's the way people qualify it. Like I, oh, I include okay, okay. a handful of novellas that were standalones that were published, and um, right. and I do include the project for Fort Freak because that was more work than I've ever done on any given novel in my life. <laughs> even though it, it topped out at like forty five thousand words, I, I say that one counts. <laughs> So, yeah, but that's what I mean. It's a lot. The point is, it's a large, yeah, it's a large bibliography. Um, And you've been doing it, as you say, now for 
quite some time. I mean, it, it, this is what the 10th anniversary this year of Bone Yeah, Shaker? it is. This is uh, nearly 20 years uh, I've been doing it, but I got started quite young. Right. I was going to say, and as you said, yeah, when you, you know, Bone Shaker itself, you were already well into your career by then. So yeah, that's, you've been doing this basically about as long as I have. Uh, you know, I, I wrote my first book in its entirety when I was 15. Wow, see, I I didn't do that. No, it was terrible. (laughs) I didn't manage that. And somebody asked about it on Twitter the other day. Well, of course it was. You were 15, but that's not the point. (laughs) Well, no, but like... The point is that you did it. In a tweet, it sounds really cool. It was about a hot Victorian ghost trapped in this mansion and it's abandoned out in the woods and this woman who's running away from kidnappers finds it and she ends up helping him solve his own murder. And it was just, I mean, appalling. But I will tell you this, I remember exactly who I sent it off to because my dad was all trying to be supportive. Um, I sent it to Teresa Nielsen Hayden and I sent it to Ellen Datlow, who are still wow. absolute titans of, of, Aim high. of the, well, yep. I'm 15 and I have no fear. <laughs> like, yeah, let's do course. this. Yeah. I'm going to be. But also, presumably you learned a lot from having done that. Oh, yes. That's the other thing. I always push this angle of, you know, finish your projects, because even if they're no good, you learn so much from them. Oh, I always tell people every single thing that you finish levels you up. Right. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, even if you have to trunk it, you have finished a thing and you can either go back later, you can cannibalize it. I mean, like right now, um, so so I very recently uh, parted company with my my long-term agent. We've been together nearly 15 years for reasons. But while I was looking for a new agent, um, the, the person who I settled on, who I think we're going to work really, really well together, was the person who I handed – well, I, I handed several people, you know, this this little, I called it my agent bait folder, <laughs> like all these partials and things that I've been working on. And uh, one of them was... was And also a list of your reward nominations. Oh, well, sure. well, well, no, but that's the weird thing about being <laughs> in my position where I'm querying people who probably know who I am. And and no, that's a good point. Actually, yeah. So it was it was a little strange. I narrowed it down to three people, and I talked to all of them. They're lovely, fine individuals. But I had a little project in there that was honestly it was friend fan fiction. <laughs> it was a little Southern Gothic set in this weird town in Tennessee called Cinderwich. And I wrote in four of the gothest ladies I know as characters, with permission from everybody. I was just trying to do something a little fun, but I actually really love the way it came out. And I know in my bones, it's never going to sell. It's a weird length. It's like 55,000 words. Um, it's friend fanfic. It's, it's something you've seen. I, 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 know, I, just, I knew it wasn't going to work. But the agent who, who I'm going with now is the one who said, you're never going to sell this. You need to put this aside and cannibalize it later. And she's, she's totally right. She's like, I think you're trying to work your way to this other story that, that I sent her a proposal for. She's like, I, I, think, I think you're working toward that. And I think that you're going to take this apart later and use the, the pieces. But this is not it. Don't do this. Well, again, that's... Trusting somebody's judgment. I mean, right. but that's not the idea of doing that. Isn't so unusual in other media. It's only in novels, right? Where people where, like they're sacred, <laughs> right? This strange idea that everything we write must end up being a, a full book. Yeah. Whereas that's you know in other media that's not the case at all. I've got two screenplays sitting on my hard drive, which are done, finished, and could be, you know, you could start filming them tomorrow. Nobody ever will. And I know nobody ever will. Nobody will ever make those. They will never see the light of day. But they are great samples of my writing style, and they are good, you know, samples in the sense of showing people that I can write. Yes. So, well, and they have done. They've served that purpose and got me work writing screenplays. So, yeah, it's it shouldn't be, I don't think, regarded as so unusual in novels to, as you say, have this novella, which nobody's going to buy, but it's a good sample of how you write and the sort of thing you want to write about. It helped me get me my new agent. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. So how, apart from the content then of your books, like how is, how have your work habits changed over the years? Cause like I say, yeah, you've been doing this for quite a while now. So presumably, and I know you've moved house several oh times in that <laughs> time and ga- gained pets and what oh have you. Lord. So it's, you know, but that aside, how have your how have your your approach to writing how has that changed over the years? Um, it used to be something that uh, I used as almost to relax, like a thing in what copious downtime I had when I was working three jobs as a grad student, where you know, like you, you take a couple hours <laughs> at the time. Uh, so my now husband and I had just moved in together, and uh, he the way his schedule was, there were two nights a week where I had like two hours just alone with nothing to do. And that was when I finished four and twenty blackbirds, like took it from a partial to a whole, and um and and that it was in that window where the first indie press edition of that was published and went so poorly. But uh, no, it, it used to just be something that I fit into the margins, even though. But I prioritized it because again, it was all I'd ever really wanted to do. But but then I I grew up and I got day jobs and and things that ate so much of my life that I had to uh, go out of my way to build in more time if I was actually going to pursue this as well. And it changed. It changed with Bone Shaker. Uh, I had been working at least part-time day jobs up through then, and that was um, it came out in September of 2009, if I remember correctly. I want to say it came out around my dad's birthday. So yeah, we'll say September. But um, and and then that took off, and and I was at the time I was doing some editorial work for this independent press called Subterranean, uh, where mostly what I did. Was um, so, so Subterranean likes to, to buy up rights to older books sometimes and release new editions of them. Uh, you almost always with you know author input and all that exciting stuff, new new forwards and, and so forth and so on. But a lot of these older books they don't have digital files, so they get scanned, and there are a million and one stupid little artifacts. And I was the person going in and cleaning out all of those little artifacts. So very thrilling work, yes. But it was steady work, and it was it was a steady paycheck, and it gave me a lot of flexibility. And and I I had worked with Subterranean before. I have a couple novellas out through them, actually three, come to think of it. And they're great folks. And um, after Bone Shaker had been out for a, about six or eight months, it became clear that I, I was going to need to just kind of reclaim my time. And uh, so I quit. Um, and that was right around the time EA came knocking, too. And that was weird. And then I took a year off and worked with them. But those were effectively the last day jobs I had. And, and by sheer dumb coincidence, uh, so my husband's kind of an old guard tech guy, largely self-taught, no no special certifications or anything, but he got in on the ground floor of a lot of stuff and he uh, became a significant breadwinner for the pair of us. And I was kind of able to take a step back and uh, basically, I mean, we've been together nearly 20 years as well. And it'll, it, it, at any given time, you know, one of us would be the main breadwinner and the other would be the person who was kind of along for the ride. And it's gone back and forth a lot over the years. And we, we have our understandings and our arrangement. And so for the last handful of years, even though I haven't made as much money as, as the market has shifted and my career has shifted and, and, you know, just things change, um, I've still been able to stay home and do this. And I'm immensely grateful for that because it, one of the things people don't talk about, especially here in the States, <laughs> uh, health insurance is usually tied to your job. Yeah. And, and if you don't have somebody who can float the bills and keep your health insurance alive, especially if you have any kind of pre-existing condition or, or any kind of health issues that are running and need to be managed, even if they're not serious, uh, it can be a huge expense. And I've just been extremely fortunate that he has been very tolerant of me sitting at home and making a third of what he makes. 
<laughs> but uh, also, I take care of the animals, though. <laughs> ah, yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. But schedule aside, what about actually when it comes down to the writing itself? I mean, are you presumably you work faster now? I'd assume, oh, but faster. that's not always the case. Yeah. No. No, I do work faster, but I work far less consistently. Um, I. It, <sighs> Like I'm basically, and and I am 100% at peace with this. If I'm not the one paying all the bills, I'm I'm content to keep the house and take care of the animals. Um, I, th- I think that's fair. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it. I'm good at it anyway, and I'm extremely obsessive compulsive. So uh, I'm I'm happy to be the one with the vacuum. It's great, <laughs> but it, it does mean in a weird way that even though I'm not working three jobs and in school, it feels like my day has shrunk. You know, like I get up in the morning and I immediately walk the dogs and I tend to the dogs and then I deal with them and the cat. And and then we had the geriatric cat who had to have her fluids and her meds and everything else. And I don't really start my morning until probably 10 o'clock most of the time, 10, 10, 30. And by then I'm starting to get hungry. <laughs> and uh, So usually it's like if I can sit down after lunch and get a few hours of work done, that's great. But this time of year... Uh, in Seattle, especially if it's overcast, it starts getting dark around three o'clock. So I got to take the dogs on their afternoon walk then uh, before it gets too dark and then feed the dogs. <laughs> so it's like, and there's always like one more thing. And and I'm kind of a walking study in that joke that writers like to tell about, oh, I, I would love to get some work done, but I really have to empty the dishwasher. Yeah. yeah. But I actually am really obsessive compulsive. <laughs> and and if the place isn't at a certain standard of clean, I, I just, I really, I can't function much, much less concentrate on work. But you, when you do sit down to work, then you presumably must write pretty uh, relentlessly to get stuff done in those few hours that you have. I, I, yes, although this year has been really strange for me. Um, I, uh, how much to say? I started the year with a really bad work for hire project that went south in every possible way, but I was doing uh, sometimes five or 6,000 words a day to complete it for about a month. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that's a crazy amount. It's, of it's just insane to, to be doing consistently yes. you know, in, in, <laughs> in one or two days. Most people have probably done that, but consistently every day, that's punishing. It had to happen within five weeks. And, um, and I did it, I pulled it together and, uh, wish I hadn't bothered. Frankly, it wasn't worth the money. Um, then kind of after that, I just, I really needed a break. I just needed a break. And and I parted company with my agent and I, I took a little downtime and then we moved again. We sold the house and moved in the middle of all this. And we've only been in the new house since I guess end of August. So we're still kind of getting settled in here. And um and so I have done very little writing, honestly, in the last few months. But I'm I'm starting to get back in the swing of it. I tried to do NaNoWriMo. Um I have a project that I've had on the back burner for a while that um, it's one of those things that I'm really excited about, partly because I think even five years ago, I wouldn't have had the chops to try it. Um, it's it's going to be it's going to be complicated and strange, but I'm really like I'm psyched for it. But it's taken a long time to come together. But that's an interesting thing about having a long writing career, isn't it? Is that you reach a point where you want every new thing that you do to be something you haven't done before and something that's challenging and it scares you a little bit yeah. in a way you think can i do this can i pull this off but that's that's what actually motivates you and keeps you going well it, it has been for this and and i i did a big push for nanoremo and and i really cleared my schedule and i really i let the house go to hell a little bit um which when you have two 95 pound long-haired dogs and a cat we call the house yeti <laughs> um <laughs> it's it's an adventure. But no, I, I, I fought the OCD and I pulled together almost 40,000 words in about two and a half weeks. 
Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, I was, I was like really excited about it. Um, but then I kind of hit a wall where I realized I was going to need to decide how I finished something at the end that I was letting kind of hang out in my back brain for a bit. I, I needed a little bit of break for it to figure out something with the structure. And then we had some family stuff land. Anyway, so it's still sitting there for now, but I'm coming back to it. <laughs> except that, except, so my new agent, I gave her one of the uh, full-length projects I gave her that I really want to shop next year is is a, it's, it's kind of a lightly paranormal mystery. It's basically a very straightforward mystery, but kind of funny with fun characters. I've been calling it like Tuesday night at nine o'clock on CBS. Um, <laughs> something that's kind of low stakes, but you like all the people involved. I, I kind of tonally, I've been shooting for psych, if, if you remember that show, which is a lot of fun. But uh, she recently, by recently, I mean this morning, uh, got me her edits on it. And I'm going to try and give her a new draft on that by the end of the year. So I'm putting down this other thing right now. Um, and we're going to try and shop it next year. So I was going to say that that leads into what I was going to ask about next, which is, do you outline or do or are you a pantser? Pantser or platzer? Because it sounds like... <laughs> well, a little bit of both. Yeah. Which, which do you it, do? It really because, depends. Because I was going to say to write that, you know, to, to do projects where you're writing 50,000 words in three weeks or whatever crazy amount it was, surely you must be working to an outline. Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's, um, I actually have a little cork board that I only got last year, um, and some different color, uh, note cards just to kind of give myself a little bit of structure for this one. Um, usually what I do, I keep a legal pad on a clipboard and I'll plan out like a couple of chapters in advance. I, I, I tend to know the, the, the general arc of what's going to happen, but for the nitty gritty, I like to, to make, well, okay. Like, so for the family plot that you talked about earlier, I kept a separate set of sheets of like when these people when when the ghost family when the dead people like who was born when who was alive for what you know who might have been present for x y and z because sometimes you just forget especially if you're talking about something that happens over a long span of time so you had like a backstory timeline yeah i had like a little timeline for it um but mostly it's just like kind of a few chapters ahead or i excuse me i'll leave myself notes like don't forget that this guy doesn't know about this thing yet <laughs> you know things like that <laughs> And I'll leave them in track changes and ask myself questions like, wait, did I say that this was three days ago or four days ago? Uh, go back and check. Um, so I leave myself a lot of notes as I go. Oh, I, I just put those in the body as I'm writing. <laughs> I, put, I use um, double square brackets. Oh, I used to use those. Uh, I, I just write, yeah, just put them right in the body and double square brackets, put in a note of, yeah, you know, remind, check eye color or whatever. Right. And then get on with it. I don't. You know, <laughs> how many miles away was this? I don't freaking remember. Uh, what law firm was this person yeah, exactly. working for? I, I don't recall. But it, yeah, no. So for the, yeah. um, have you seen? Let me reframe it this way. Have you seen the Netflix um, Haunting of Hill House? That limited series. I haven't. No. Oh my god! Oh my god! It is so good. It's so good from so many different angles. But here's what I took away from it. Um, so. You know how Stephen King likes to uh, do books where the first half uh, they're kids and in the second half they're adults, and maybe they should really just be two books. <laughs> um, Haunting of Hill House manages to thread that really, really nicely. And I watched the structure of it, and I and it suddenly all clicked in my head. Like, I can do this project I've had in the back of my head all this time. I can structure it like this. Oh, cool. Holy crap. It was like, you know, you got your, your peanut butter in my chocolate. You got your chocolate in my peanut butter. Um, <laughs> But it was like, yes, this I can do. But but it's it's um uh, in a nutshell, it's uh, four friends who survived a school shooting 20 years ago, and uh, the school itself is basically Hill House. <laughs> but um, I needed to find a way to to tell this story in terms of then, now, and next. 
And so I have my little different colored cards for like then, now, and next. And I'm leaving myself notes when I realize like, oh, uh, if I'm going to talk about this, then I need to at least have a scene that happened back then about this. So I'll make a card like, hey, uh, you know, here's a list of scenes that you're going to need to compose since we're not doing this linearly. Don't forget you need these. Right. So it's it's not so much outlining. <laughs> uh, it's more like uh, Lincoln Logs. <laughs> or like Legoing or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so my next question was going to be about notes. Do you do you make notes longhand? Do you carry a notebook with you, or do you just wait until you get in the office? A uh, little of both. Um, I always have notebooks on me, and lately, <laughs> uh, I just did a thread about this. This is why I laughed a couple nights ago. Um, especially if I'm sitting at night watching TV. Uh, my 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 great vice in this world is I'll sit around and drink red wine at night while watching trashy television, and it's it's a delight to me. But I'll get ideas, and I'll just kind of put them in the notes on my phone and forget about them. <laughs> until I go looking for something else and I have this whole string of stuff like, what the hell was I doing? But sometimes they're really cool. Like, um, I did this tweet about the other day where like, I had left myself this note that said, next time you build a villain, uh, do it one of these two ways. Uh, give somebody a lot and promise them more, but don't deliver. Or give somebody not enough and then take that away from them. Do one of those two things. Mm. And I'm like, that's that's actually pretty good. Go drunk, Sherry. Well done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but it's I find deep, man. it's deep, man. And then one of the other notes just said, um, golems, can you put the scroll in any orifice? Oh, yes. I saw that one because I added Helene Wicker in that one, <laughs> author of Golem and the Ginny. <laughs> right. It's like, so I just pulled out my phone now. One of them I've noted, uh, Shira as a Creole language. And I was like, what the hell was I talking about? But but no, then I remembered. So I saw the original show when I was a kid, and it was a commercial for toys. Yeah. But the new show is all the women who grew up with it who are now turning it into something like an actual story. So it's like the difference between a pigeon and a creole when it comes linguistically. You know what I mean? It's like uh, you, you've I taken see, this baseline, and all these other people came to it, and this is what they brought to it. And now it's becoming a whole thing, not merely a commercial. And by the way, it's brilliant, just as an aside. I love it. It's so great. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. Scorpia is so pure. We love her so much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we all love Scorpia. We yeah. all love Although Scorpia. I actually have a really soft spot for Entrapta. I, I know. Admit. She's so funny. Um, she's, oh, bless her. <laughs> it's funny, actually, about the forgetting notes. I had that experience just today. I mean, I have it occasionally like you, but it happened just today when I was cleaning out some notes and found two story ideas that I had completely forgotten I had. Yeah. Just... It's sitting there in my notes like, oh, yeah, I completely forgot about that. Huh, maybe I'll do some of that one day. I probably won't. But, yeah, <laughs> but you could. I like to form a, <laughs> if you I wanted. like to think that I might. <laughs> I, I used to keep a loose ideas folder that was literally just a folder that I would throw like newspaper clippings and things like that in. But uh, here in the year of our Lord, 2020, uh, mostly I just keep it all online or on my phone. Yeah, that, that's what Instapaper's for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But every now and again, I'll find something. And actually once I got a book deal by pulling one of those out of my butt just real quick on the fly because the editor was like, well, what if it was more like, uh, give me something more like this. And I thought about this, this scrap I had seen online that I actually printed out and put in the folder and, and it worked just, just once in a while you get lucky. But I always tell people ideas just aren't the problem. I've got more ideas than I'm ever going to have time to write down. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It's, it's the execution of the ideas that matters. Yeah. Do you, when you come to write, uh, when you're when you're actually like sitting there writing the manuscript, then after outlining and note taking, do you go from start to finish? Are you linear, or do you jump around and do nonlinear? Because I jump around. Well, I, I usually am linear. That's why this one project is really different for me 
because um, I started doing it linearly, and then I realized at some point that, no, I'm going to have to thread in some of this other stuff, and that's why I started keeping notes about the extra scenes. But uh, generally speaking, I go beginning to end, and I have a hard time working on more than one thing at once, Uh, which is why I was a little bit sad this morning when I closed the file for the other project, because I'm like, no, I told myself I'm going to finish this mystery, and it's going to be the thing we shop first half of next year. So I'm going to work on that now instead. Did you find that was the case when you were doing non, when you've done non novel work? Oh, no, I'm the no. same. <laughs> I can, only, I can, I, I find I can only work on one novel at a time. Yeah. Just one book. Right. But I can work on other things in different media. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, at like, the same time. I mean, I have done ad copy for companies like Amazon as recently as last year <laughs> while working on books. It's, 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 right. it's a different muscle, different skill set, really. Um, I mean, Lord, I, I once spent an entire year porting, I think it was 4,500 mattresses to the internet for Sears. And uh, I wrote two books in that time. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you know, it's like, but it's not the same thing. It's, it's not the same creative muscles. Well, it's, it's also nonfiction. Yeah. So, but like, say when you were working on the video game, mm-hmm. were you also doing a novel at the same time as that? Or did that take up all of your focus? Uh, I was supposed to be doing a novel at the same time as that. <laughs> Uh, in the end, uh, I was not able to finish it, and it ran late. Although, it, uh, through, I, I will not use the word conveniently because that is not what I mean. Uh, coincidentally, let's say, uh, my editor's father died, and she ended up leaving the company for a little bit of a hiatus, which which gave me the buffer I needed to finish the book, even though it came out late. But but no, I it, even with the game, and I was I was really really excited about that game for a really long time. <laughs> And then I wasn't. Welcome to video games. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it really ate my life. Not not least of all, though, because I was here in Seattle and I was flying down uh, to to EA in Redwood City, Redmond City, Redwood City, uh, flying down to San Francisco in the yeah, Bay Area, yeah. or, or San Jose, depending on the fog. Uh, I, was, I was doing that like once a week and sometimes just going in for the same day and turning around and leaving. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's harsh. While I was also doing a bunch of conventions and things because Bone Shaker and Dreadnought were still really hot. And I was still touring as well. And that'll drain you. Oh my it? God, so you, yeah. you've got no energy. None at all. Once you've been doing that all day, no energy left to write uh, prose. Especially yeah. once you've been in and out of airports. And I mean, and there is the running joke that every time you see an author in a series put out a book where a bunch of stuff happens in airports, you know, they wrote it right after they were on tour. <laughs> it's like all they have on <laughs> yeah. the brain at that point. Well, and the airports thing, I mean, I always used to, uh, I grew up reading loads and loads of like rock and music journals oh, yeah. uh, and stuff because, you know. I was going to be a rock star. Um, and I remember reading so many, you know, times bands and actors as well say this, but bands especially would talk about how they were so sick of airports. They hate the sight of airports. They never get, you know, people say, oh, but you fly to Budapest to do this gig. And they're like, yeah, but you don't no, see any you of see it. The All airport. you ever see is the inside of an airport and a plane. And I didn't believe them when I was a kid. I was like, yeah, they're just being modest. And of course, now that I've traveled around a fair amount for work myself it really is true you just i get to the stage where i genuinely can't remember what the hotel room i looked like that i stayed in even six months oh, yeah. ago you know there are places i know i've stayed <laughs> where i cannot remember what the hotel or the hotel room looked like at all and i'm just like i have no did i stay there have i been to that place i have no memory oh at least it. twice on my last tour i went down to the front desk crying because my key didn't work and i was trying to get into the room number from two stops ago oh no <laughs> uh i <laughs> say so here's my tip for that when i check into somewhere seriously when i check in the very first thing i do when i get to the room is get out my phone and take a photo with the room number yeah well played <laughs> so that if i if i am 
drunk or otherwise indisposed, uh, I can get back to my room and then I delete that photo as I check out when I'm, you know, leaving. Oh, I don't think I ever had the brain power. I, the the tours that I have done for, for books at least have been, uh, all arranged by girls in their early twenties who've never flown in their lives, have never left the city of New York and don't own a map. I mean, I'm talking, Oh God, one of my last tours, I, so I started in Tennessee, where I was living at the time, uh, went to Houston, then to Chicago, and then to, I want to say Albuquerque, and then to Portland, and then to Santa Fe, and then to Seattle. <laughs> it was like every single day, there was like a five-hour flight. And and they were putting me in these hotels that in Houston, the hotel she put me in was two hours from the airport mm. and 45 minutes away from the venue. And my flight left at eight in the morning. <laughs> so you basically didn't sleep. No, the I night didn't before. sleep and I didn't eat. And uh, and and it was nine. It was nine stops. It, it was it was I guess thirteen days, something like that. And that was one of my last tours. I just I was just shot every time I got anywhere. It was literally all I could do to hold my eyes open. And I felt bad. Like I ended up going through Houston again on that. And I, I hit Houston a couple times. There's a really great bookstore there. Um, that everybody loves to stop at, Murder by the Book. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Yeah, that. I was going to get together with a, a mutual friend of ours, Justin Evans, and I was just too too sacked. I felt terrible. I, I had to cancel plans with him. I'm like, I'm just going to stay in my hotel room and die. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I really, it's, it's, sometimes people don't understand, like, I really just need to sleep. I just, I need a minute. Because sleeping on a plane oh, I can't do it. is not, you know, even in first class or whatever, it's not the same. No, it's, it never is. And I've only flown first Class a couple of times trying to sleep in coke, Ugh, you know. No. You can doze, but it, it just is not. Well, and, and I have a I have a spinal defect, so like as especially as I've been getting older, I have to travel with like a, a lumbar brace and support and all that stuff, and so I always have to upgrade at least a little bit so I have room to to for all that stuff. But anything longer than like a two hour flight, especially the side of my forties, it's just it's more than I can do. It I just. Got to go and have some massages and some physical therapy for a week or two after. And <laughs> so I'm doing a lot less of it than I used to. So to get back to, uh, to, to get away from the, the hell of airports and travel, <laughs> um, just to sort of start closing us out then, what do you think you are pretty good at? Just purely from a craft perspective. From a craft perspective, I think I'm pretty good at turning a setting into a character. I I love, 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 well, I mean, like the family plot. I, I wanted to write a Southern Gothic ghost story before I left the South again. And I knew that we were probably mm-hmm. going back to Seattle. And and I love Chattanooga. My, my husband's from there, and he's kind of got this poor Southern white guy hang up about, you know, like, if you have to come back, it's because you failed. But I really like the place. And, and I'm from Florida. And, and so it was a little different, but I plugged into it. And, and before I left, I wanted to do a story about Chattanooga. And this weird little historic neighborhood that, that we lived in. And, and I, I think that that came out the way that I wanted it. And I have a real hard time writing about uh, anything that's set in a place I haven't been. But I love local history. And, and that's like kind of the way I plug into that. You mean lived in or just visited? L- or just at least visit, at least visited. I have to have at least set eyes on the place. But once you have, you think you're pretty good at then... Translating that into... Finding yeah, the story Finding, finding the yeah. story there. And and one of the ways that I like to do that best, I, I have this ridiculous collection down in my library of these little indie pub and sometimes self-pubbed local ghost stories from all over the country where I've, where I've toured and traveled. And some of them are bigger than others. Some of them are better than others. Some of them appear to have hand-drawn covers. But... Um, 
but the joy of them is, it's like, I, I kind of have this private theory that ghost stories are modern memes. They're the way we continue to talk about the people and things that aren't there anymore. It, they were really interesting and cool, and they added flavor to the place where we live. And so we say that we're ghosts, and that way we get to see, keep talking about them. That's a very cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, no, so I, I, I collect those things, and I pay attention to who used to live there and who lives there now, and I, I try to talk about it and try to be fair. Um, because especially when you're talking about like the American South, um, people, uh, it's, it's a fussy thing to do. Like if you're not from there, they don't want you talking about them cause you don't understand. But if you are from there, it, it, you can, it can be a little blindered. And so as somebody who grew up around there, but kind of all around there and not one specific place, I, I tend to be really, really careful to, to try and be fair to everybody from every angle, but still tell the truth. And I think that's probably the trick of writing about just about any place when all is said and done. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I have a couple of those uh, indie published local ghost story things from when I went to New Orleans many years ago. Oh, right on. <laughs> I love New Orleans. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would live there in a heartbeat. Yeah, and this was, well, this was pre Katrina, like, oh, yeah. like many, and I haven't been back since. I really I should. A couple times. Many, I love many it. Years ago. But, but those local ghost book things, yeah, were really cool, actually. I, oh, I love them. it to death. No, um, I, uh, oh, good Lord. When, when Katrina happened, I was in Chattanooga and. Lord, the entire South was just wigging out. It was, it was a very strange, you know, um, there's a writer, Diana Rowland, who was there in the middle of it, who was caught in the storm. And uh, she writes the uh, white trash zombie books. <laughs> and she's, she's an absolute scream. But anytime we do panels at conventions and the like, and people want to talk about the post-apocalyptic stuff and how they think it would really work, she starts talking about what happened after Katrina. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Oh, wow. I could sit and talk about that all day, though. So I will restrain myself. <laughs> <laughs> So okay, so that's what you're that's what you're good at. What do you wish you were better at? Um, I wish I was better at dialogue among people from a similar demographic that doesn't make them all sound the same. And I'm specifically thinking of the Toll, which is my most recent release. And there are a couple of guys who similar backgrounds, uh, similar mindsets, sim but they're but they're different characters. But I feel like they kind of sound the same, and that annoys the crap out of me. I, I would like to be uh, yeah, I, I would like to be better about distinguishing dialogue between characters of similar uh, demographics. Demographics is fine. You know, all all my old ladies sound the same, or all my it, it, like I I need to get better about teasing that out for the individual. All right. So last question then, uh, and I think I may know the answer to this given what you talked about earlier. But what is what is something that you have uh, read or watched recently where the writing itself really impressed you, and and what about it impressed you? Well, like I said, when it came to Hill House, it wasn't just the writing, it was the structure that it, it threaded so cleanly and so neatly. And you, I mean, Lord, two episodes in and I would have died for half of those characters. <laughs> I would have thrown myself in front of a bus for baby Luke and his addiction <laughs> issues. Um, but, but no, Hill House in particular, because that is an easy one for me to talk about. I have thought about it a lot. Um, it's a study in this family that had some calamity that nobody wants to talk about, and it's 20-odd years later, and each one of them individually has been trying to interface with that tragedy for their entire lives since. And it's the different paths they take and the different levels of success that they achieve. Uh, some of them are trying to ignore it and move forward, and some of them are trying to fight it, and some of them are trying to negotiate with it. It's, it's almost like you know the stages of grief, and each one is an individual character. Um, but it was just really, really beautifully done. And there, there's one sequence that I read about where these two sisters are riding in a car. I mean, I saw it, obviously, but I read about this after the fact. And a ghost is supposed to jump out from the back between them. 
in kind of a jump scare, but he told the actress to go ahead and do it a page ahead. Oh. Scared the bejesus out of the actors. <laughs> and it's, it's a fantastic scene because they didn't see it coming. They shriek and freak out and drive off the road. And I mean, you, you completely buy it. And, and it's, it's about a complicated family and complicated ways and, and the, uh, uh, the lies we tell to protect other people. And uh, even when it makes them hate us and, and just, it it was so, God, it's it's so complex and so tightly done. And I just, I cannot say enough about it. I absolutely loved it. So on that note, then on a a dark, spooky and gothic note, (laughs) Sherry, where can people find you online? Uh, I am cleverly hidden at sherrypriest.com. You don't even have to like spell my name right. You can just Google Sherry Priest and spell it however you want. Uh, Last time I looked, 30 of the top 50 search terms leading to my site were misspellings of my name. Some of them... (laughs) That sounds like me. (laughs) Yeah, like some of them so wildly far out there. I I just think Google, they must be wizards. I I don't know how they found me. But um, yeah, I'm I'm easy to catch and my my address is up there and everything. And I'm on Twitter as CMPriest. And uh, mostly it's dog and cat pictures and the occasional uh, political rant. I, th- I think my bio says 85% pet pictures and 15% lady rage by volume. Which is about accurate, yep. I think that's fair. I think it's fair. <laughs> and they are beautiful pets as well. Oh, wait, thank you. We love them very much. It, actually, Jeff Vandermeer is on tour right now, and he stopped by a couple days ago, literally just to meet them. <laughs> I, the, I can completely understand that. <laughs> well, if you ever come to Seattle, you're welcome to as well. <laughs> I would do exactly the same in his position. Um, so if uh, if our listeners aren't familiar with your work, what work of yours would you recommend they check out first? Uh, Bone Shaker's the easy one, and it's pretty age-appropriate. There's no sex, uh, minimal swearing, zombie-on-zombie violence. Uh, that one is still my most popular book to date. Um, if you like ghost stories, Family Plot is my favorite. If you like uh, really dark Lovecraftian-type horror, I'd say Maplecroft. Uh, a Victorian epistolary, you know... Or if you want to look at it another way, it's Lizzie Borden fighting Cthulhu with an axe. See, that's the elevator pitch. <laughs> it is. It is. I used to have it tighter than that, but that book came out a handful of years ago now, and I, I just don't have all my promo on on Brain Deck anymore. Oh yeah, I know how that goes. You forget about everything once it's been out a while. Oh, I really do. <laughs> Sherry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to talk to you at long last. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. And, oh, Lord, now my dogs are trying to play right in front of me. Guys, 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 no, out, out, (laughs) out. They heard me talk. Out. Come on, let's go out. Out, out. Doggies, doggies, ahoy. Now they're just grinning at me.